0: When our politicians resemble folks like Vladimir V. Putin, well, we ought to to notice and we ought to take some action to try to make it to where they don't resemble autocrats, dictators like Putin, who if he's not a dictator is so close as to make no difference.
1: Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. This Week in Common Sense is the weekend wrap-up of ThisIsCommonSense.com, where Paul Jacob has provided commentary since 1999. And this week, we ended the week with a dictator in Russia.
0: Yes, and, uh, and we brought it home, because uh, uh, the, the title of the commentary was Putin and Householder, for life, and and everybody knows it was a big story this week. If you follow the news, that Vladimir Putin, who has been in office uh, because of the the Russia's term limit law, which is part of the constitution, he has been in office for twenty years, either as president most of the time, or he's he's switched up uh, and switched places um, with a lieutenant who had became president, and then he became prime minister, but for 20 years, in essence, has ruled over Russia uh, in a very authoritarian way. And he is now in his second term, six-year terms. He's, he will be in, in office until 2024, but then the two-term limit will hit, and he'll have to leave as president. And all of a sudden, the Duma, their Congress, proposes a law, and Putin comes to speak to the Duma and says he's okay with the new law. And the new law is this. They're going to keep the term limits because even Putin said, you know, someday it's probably going to be better for Russia to not be ruled by one person and have it be such a personality driven dictatorship. Uh, Even Putin kind of recognizes that's the better way, but not, not anytime soon. So they keep the two-term limit, but start a new clock. So the 20 years that he's been in power doesn't count anymore. And in fact, the next four years won't count anymore. And he can run for two more terms and serve until 2036. He will have then served longer than Stalin was in power in Russia. Not quite as long as Peter the Great, but at least he beats Stalin. And of course, in 2036, Putin will be 83 years old. I mean, at some point, the ultimate term limit, death, will take effect and cannot be repealed, at least thus far, by our uh, our leaders, so to speak. So I hear this story. I had several friends send me the story and say, oh, you do going to want to talk about this. And, then, and of course, I did uh, want to and did. Uh, but. You know, I I didn't think about the end of the story, the rest of the story, as uh, Paul Harvey used to say, until I got into reading about Putin and thinking about it and realized, oh my goodness, what Putin is doing in Russia, claiming in essence to be, understand term limits and it's usually a good thing, but we have to keep stability and, you know, and I'm doing that right now. What causes me to just step back is realizing that what is happening right now in Ohio, in our fair country, is exactly what Putin's doing. Speaker of the House Larry Householder in Ohio, a Republican speaker, although elected with a majority of his votes coming from the Democrats, not the Republicans, He is behind an effort. Now, he says about term limits uh, that they're pretty offensive to the people of Ohio, even though the people of Ohio love the term limits. They're not offended at all. But that's his claim. So he clearly doesn't like term limits. But they're pushing a measure, and he hasn't really taken ownership of the measure publicly. But he's clearly behind it in every way, shape, and form. And when we see the big special interests put their money, behind the petition drive, we will know who asked them to do that. And that's Speaker of the House, Larry Householder. He is doing exactly what Putin is doing. Ohio has an eight-year limit in the House, an eight-year limit in the Senate. You can leave office and then you could serve again later, uh, but you have to take a break. He is pretending he's gonna make it tougher so his scam, you know, Putin, unfortunately, has such control of the country that he can, you know, he, he can pretty much be assured that the court, you know, it doesn't take effect until the uh, Russia Supreme Court, uh, Constitutional Court, I think is its specific name, but same as the Supreme Court here, and uh, until they say okay, well, I think Putin is pretty much uh, aware they're going to say okay, uh, or else. And then he's gonna, there's going to be a plebiscite in April, so the people will weigh in. That's great, except that they don't really have free and fair elections in Russia because, of course, the state media is going to dominate everything, and they're going to say that this is a wonderful thing. People campaigning against it might be arrested, might be beat up. Several other bad things could happen. It's not going to be a fair fight. And then, of course, I have uh, more than an inkling That if somehow the people mysteriously and amazingly cut through all the crap and went and took the risk of voting no, you don't get to set a new clock for yourself and serve until you're 83 years old, that the votes would get counted in a way that made those votes not count. Uh, So it's one thing in Russia. It's another thing in the U.S., but it's the exact same scam. It's getting a new clock. You know, term limits don't really have much impact if politicians constantly reset the clock because the clock is everything. It's time to leave because you've served too long. Oh, but my past service doesn't matter anymore because I set a new clock. No, that's not going to cut it. The scam in, in Russia is that it's an authoritarian place where democracy doesn't really exist. In Ohio the scam has to be a little bit better because we have more rights, more mechanisms to fight against politicians who try to steal power and use it for their own devices. But this initiative is going to be sold to people as a way to make term limits tougher. That is the only way that anyone has ever successfully weakened a term limits law is by lying to the public and saying it toughens it. So in Ohio, they would not have consecutive term limits. Eight years in, you have to take a break, you come back for eight years. Instead, they would have draconian lifetime limits. The difference being that this measure that will be petitioned, and I hope it doesn't get enough signatures, but they'll lie to enough people that I suspect it will get enough signatures. But this would say instead of eight years in the House, eight years in the Senate, same thing, we'll have 16 years and it'll be a tough lifetime limit. Well, 16 years is not a term limit. It's a joke. And, of course, very few people serve eight in the House and then eight in the Senate or come back anyway. The term limits for most people is the end of their service and they go on to live their life in other ways. But if you have 16 years, what's going to happen is that people will tend to stay for 16 years because they have the same seat and they can hold that seat as a powerful incumbent who today can do you favors because of their power and then can ask for your vote so they can stay another term and another and another. And instead of that ending after eight years with this new initiative, if it were to pass, they'd get 16 years. Now. The other, of course, key component is that Householder, just like Putin, sets himself a new clock. So all of his past service is out. Now he won't serve until he's 83 under his little scheme. He only gets to serve until he's 76. But he will, if this passes, be able to sit in the speakership. One of the beauties of term limits is that the leadership doesn't have dictatorial power over members because they've been there forever and they're going to stay forever. And so if you buck the leadership, they can hold it against you and make you pay for it term after term. Well, now all of a sudden, if, if householder, now the speaker can be speaker for another 16 years, we're back to the old ways. And that's exactly what they want. And that's exactly what Putin wants. Putin wants more power over the lives of every man, woman, and child in Ohio. And he's going about it in precisely the same way that Larry Householder is going about it in Ohio, to allow him to have power for another 16 years, basically another generation. Uh, And yet it will be sold. And if you look at some of the media reports that I've looked at, it will be sold as toughening term limits. and frankly, so far, the media has pretty much bought that line. Now, most of the media, in my experience, is not for term limits. So I'm not expecting them to cover it very well. It's going to require a grassroots effort. It may require some money to advertise so that people hear the message. Uh, but there is there was a big scam <clears throat> that everybody who follows the news saw, this week, Vladimir v. Putin getting around term limits in Russia, what they don't know, the rest of the story, is that what he's doing is exactly what Speaker Householder in Ohio is doing. Let's stop him. We can't really stop Putin. I don't see a way. (laughs) You come up with one, leave it in the comments section. We'll, We'll act on it but we can stop our own wannabe despots and we better and it's happening right now today in Ohio.
1: Well, that was the first one. <laughs> yes. That was the last
0: one. And you know someone once said the last shall be first and and look we've made it happen. But the the first one was a theme we've we've often uh, hit uh, on uh, at common sense at thisiscommonsense.com. Uh, are we graduating from plastic? We talked about the plastic ban, plastic bags in New York City. And it, it just, you know, we, people are aware of these things. And so we won't, we won't go on and on about it. But this is yet another case of let's do something for the environment. Let's do something about environmental degradation and then we do something that i don't think has any real impact on the environment any real positive change it's all virtue signaling it's all let's do something that you know it's kind of like uh, the the funny thing uh you know god's coming the second coming uh look busy uh or in washington when they want to fix a problem you go to a meeting and then you realize about two minutes into the meeting that we're not trying to fix the problem. We're trying to figure out a PR strategy to slough the problem off on somebody else or to deny there's a problem or what have you. Virtue signaling doesn't save the environment, it makes us feel better if if we're not smart enough to realize that it doesn't save the environment. Um, but increasingly, you're worried that people know it doesn't really work. Um, you know, Throughout this country, you know, the straw is our big enemy, and we've got to get rid of straws. And frankly, I'm not a big fan of straws. My kids always loved them, but I don't really like straws. So this one doesn't hurt me so much. But you know, I think there's a lot of little kids around this country who are just livid with what's going on. Uh, and well, they should be because the plastic in the ocean, uh, an infinitesimal amount of it is coming from the United States. Uh, straws are not the problem and getting rid of all the straws is not really the solution. And frankly, most of the paper straws I have ever, uh, started to use (laughs) are not very good, not very good. So, uh, This is more of that let's act like we're doing something, let's look busy, let's suffer, let's make other people suffer, let's legislate something so that our policy is clear. We have collectively virtue signaled and nothing really gets any better. And it it strikes me that it's kind of the flip side uh, of this, you know, zero tolerance, we so hate guns that when a second grader chews his peanut butter sandwich into a gun shape and says, bam, bam, we need to call a SWAT team in to subdue him and drag him to uh, Guantanamo Bay or somewhere. Um, and, and we have all of these uh, stories that constantly come up and you know it, at, at the base of them, is a complete unreality about how the world works that we take out on little kids as a society all because we have to signal that we don't like people being murdered. We don't like people being shot and maimed or killed as if somehow that isn't a given. I mean, I, I just think that ought to be a given. And and because of that, we have to create this elaborate uh, police state against little kids and and we've talked about that uh, for years uh, but it but it strikes me that this sort of you know let's ban plastic bags is the flip of that now we're going to make everybody suffer a little bit but it's the same sort of virtue signaling completely disconnected from doing any good in the world as if and and frankly the only way you can get away with that is that you don't ever measure what you're doing. You don't ever look for what the impact is. And, and of course, we fall into that all the time. How many government programs designed to help people? After a few years, they do a study, they find out it doesn't help people. Oh, yes, it does. It must. Because we're so good. Because we wanted to help. So it's, uh, it's kind of the opposite of science in a social science way. Uh, But the more we, you know, it's almost like the more we shout something, the louder we shout, it, the less it's true. And you hear so much talk about, you know, that people who maybe are small government people deny the science as if we have experts and we can run the world in such a wonderful way. And yet... Then you look at all the instances in which people tried to run the world in such a wonderful way, in some total way, like totalitarian way, and horrible results, and, and yet people never see it. In fact, you know, I think the main uh, reaction that people like you and I, and I think most of our, our uh, listeners, have when they hear socialism is to think if you give government that much power, to do all these different things, how do you then restrain that government from doing all the things throughout history that have just been horrendous? And you, it's like a blank stare. Like, well, what are you talking about? As if, <clears throat> as if all the bad things government did, as if the internment of Japanese-Americans in camps in the United States during World War II was somehow disconnected from giving government the power to do things like that. And and, and so they recognize the wrong of what government has done, and and yet they have complete faith that if we give it the same power again, it will somehow act benevolently. It's like the people I hear sometimes, and and, you know, you kind of know what they mean, uh, or what you think they mean, what you hope they mean. Uh, when they talk about but what, what we really should have is benevolent dictatorship. Because, of course, democracy's messy, and democracy can be wrong. It can be horribly wrong. And I think small-D Democrats like me have to admit that it can be horribly wrong, or we lose all credibility. But at the same time, when I hear someone say something about a you know benevolent dictatorship, I think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because there's been none ever in history and there won't be any, and we all know that. So why pretend that that that's gonna happen? It strikes me in my crazy head as the same as when I hear someone talk about a country club prison. What that always tells me is they've never been to prison because there is no country club prison. You could not pump in enough cable TV to make any prison a country club because the number one attribute of a country club is that you usually have to pay a lot of money. I'm not a member of a country club. Uh, You have to pay a lot of money and you get to be there and you want to be there. And if you ever want to leave, there's no guard holding you in. And so, you know, when when people say that, it means I've heard a bunch of media tell me this phrase, and I now believe it, but it's anyone who has any knowledge knows it's not true. So it's uh, the the whole idea of democracy, to me, springs from, you know, if there's three of us who want to go eat, or if there's seven of us who want to go to a movie and figuring out what movie we go to. We would use some sort of democratic process in doing that because we're all equal and our desire for what food or what movie is equal. And, and of course there are better ways. And we talk about ranked choice voting uh, at com often. And other reforms, term limits, there's all kinds you know, so that the same people don't get to choose, you know, four of the seven don't get their movie every, you know, because the other three would, would vote with their feet and go to a separate movie. Uh, There's all kinds of ways to to make democracy work better, and it needs every check and balance and protection for human rights. But uh, when people talk about democracy without any recognition that without it, we're left with, you know, oligarchies and dictatorships, Uh, I I just, I, I wonder how they come from that perspective. And, and it, it also means that I think those of us who are small to Democrats do have to recognize we need all those limits. So democracy is no panacea, but the hits on it, I think, are, are not helpful. They're not smart. Uh, it's people who know enough to be dangerous, I think, in, in, in dismissing it because it is a path to protect our rights from those in government. A lack of democracy has, has not achieved that in all the times it's been tried. And in fact, one of the most interesting things to me is the degree to which you will hear the Chinese Communist Party argue against democracy. In most of the world, Putin pretends he's a democrat, small d. Other leaders like Erdogan and in Turkey and other places, they always want the veneer of being democratic. They pretend that the people are with them. In China, they the the one embrace of communism. Yeah, other than as a totalitarian, you know, they want totalitarian government. Um, How communist versus capitalist, they want to be in charge of everything. What do you call that? Well, I call it totalitarian. And they, they are adamantly opposed to democracy throughout this coronavirus pandemic. Their argument is that we have a better system because... We can do everything by command. And I think there's been plenty written, and we've discussed uh, here at thisiscommonsense.com, how false that is and how dangerous and ineffective top-down government is in solving a lot of these problems. Uh, but, But democracy, you know, politicians, when they talk about democracy, it is winning an election. It's not democracy unless they win. But most of us recognize that we have to have a way to make decisions that are fair, that we make collectively. Those decisions are limited. People have rights against that democratic process, but it has to be a democratic process at the heart of what government legitimately
1: does. So that was the end of part one for this week of Common Sense for the second week of March 2020. And now part two, in which Paul talks about election interference
0: i had the view when they first talked about russian interference that i think a lot of people had which was so oh, the russians hacked our way too you know easy to hack it appears from different things i've read uh election systems so somehow they got into and th- there were reports about them uh trying to get into different systems but i thought oh, apparently they were able to get in somewhere. Well, no, of course, the Russians did not hack and change a single vote once it, once it was cast. What was being alleged is that their somewhat goofy Facebook ads, uh, which they spent uh, several hundred thousand dollars, as I understand it, caused people to be even more at each other's throats than they would have been anyway. And of course, they had. They had armies, I don't know how big their armies were, but armies of people, trolls online, you know, trying to get people angry and fight with each other. Gee, talk about doing what Americans can do for themselves. Uh, we, you know, if you're opposed to, and, and I'm not encouraging any Russian trolls to come try to start fights, uh, but, you know, if you want to dampen that, uh, stop getting angry and fighting and, you know, there, there are certain things we can do, but it's not, uh, it's not changing the election or hacking the election. It's, a, it's more voices and they're profoundly dumb voices, profoundly negative voices, voices intended to create problems and fights and, and anger and so on and uh, resist. Uh, there had been a huge resistance to Trump after he was elected. Let's resist the, uh, the Russian desire, uh, Russian government's desire, to make us mad at each other. But, of course, the, the story wasn't, uh, hey, we finally figured out there had been uh, a lot of Russian news. We've been covering some of that all along, not as much as the crazy mainstream media. But what sparked Tuesday's commentary, Running Interference, was some young people who came to the US from Canada, legally, were here in the country, and were agitating, uh, actively campaigning uh, for Bernie Sanders and for socialism. They like socialism, they think we should like it too. And, you know, I think a lot of people say, what are they, they don't have no right to speak, they're from somewhere else, get them the heck out of here. But, uh, as I pointed out, I think more voices are better than fewer voices, and I have so often in my, you know, life, in my career working in politics, uh, kind of seen it from the other way. I I did a lot of work in Oklahoma on a petition drive. The attorney general in Oklahoma decided he wanted to throw myself and two other people in in prison for 10 years uh, for running a petition drive that he said we didn't do the right way. Even though, of course, the people on the ground, I live in Virginia, not Oklahoma, I was on the ground very little. But, but the people who were on the ground had asked state officials, hey, here's how we're doing it. Does that work? They were told yes. Uh, the AG said no after the fact and wanted to put us in prison because we were outside agitators. And, and we've heard it all along. I was called an outside agitator in Nebraska where one time I was testifying after a petition drive that I had managed. Uh, and was asked you know what my experience was in nebraska and uh, you know i expected different questions about that particular drive but i hadn't expected the questions about you know my history in nebraska and i started recalling the different campaigns i'd been involved in in 92 in 94 in 96 in 98 in 2000 in 2002 uh 2010 was the was the year that I was doing the campaign. So I mean, I, I think I have the bona fides, the street cred to be an outside agitator. And I think we have almost nothing to fear from outside agitators. Sure, they may be right, they may be wrong, but more voices are better. We want all the voices heard. We want to be able to get all the information. We don't want some censor, be it the government or anybody else. But now you know, the government has no right to do it. Uh, Some private, you know, Google, somebody else, Facebook, you know, they can be a a stupid censor, and hopefully we can knock them out of business if that's what they do, and we can find an alternative. But regardless of who it is, I want the voices. I don't want somebody else limiting what I can hear. And so as much as I think these uh, young people from Canada are uh, politically misguided, uh, let them speak. And let All of us speak all over the country. One of the beautiful things about America is that states cannot wall off influence from other people in other states. Um, And, of course, the the interesting thing to me, and we had a link in that uh, piece, Running Interference, at thisiscommonsense.com. But one of the interesting things is I uh, put a link in about the fact that I don't want them voting. In other words, if you're here visiting from Uzbekistan, I think you should be free to say anything you want on an American street, just like any American. Uh, But I don't want you to go to the polls and vote because I don't think that's your right. Uh, I think voting should be the exclusive right of citizens of the United States. Now, I'm not for walling off our country I am for immigration. I think immigration is a wonderful thing I'd, I'd like to you know get rid of the welfare state. I certainly think that a, uh, a uh, in between intermediate step would be to say, as the Trump administration has, uh, but maybe even go further, they are now have pushed something that the left has gone apoplectic about and, uh, and the courts have thus far sided with the Trump administration, but where you will take a demerit if you're in this country seeking citizenship and you go on the public dole. And I think that what we ought to do is say that anyone coming into this country as an immigrant is not allowed to go on the public dole. And that maybe a smart step would be to say, you need a sponsor and that sponsor could be an individual or a family or a church or some other organization that takes responsibility. Uh, I first heard about this because my father mentioned that when his father came from Ireland to Canada and then from Canada to the United States as an immigrant, he had a sponsor at the church, at the Catholic church that he went to, that was responsible for the first five years he was here to take care of him if he lost his job and was penniless so that he wouldn't be on the street. And so that he wouldn't be a, a, a public uh, burden. Uh, and, and it seems to me that, that makes a lot of sense. It allows the American people, by our generosity and our commitment, I like commitment, it allows us to determine how many people can come in. And it says to the person who says, hey, I don't want a bunch of people coming in and, and you know, costing me an arm and a leg to take care of them. Don't worry, you're not going to be out a penny, and it allows the people who say, you know what, I want my I want my relatives to come in, or I want someone I don't even know, but I I love people. I want that diversity and new people to get a chance to be part of this society to put their money where their mouth is. And of course, you know this uh, gentleman at the church. I don't think uh, was ever out a nickel on my grandfather. He was a pretty hardworking guy, and that would be the expectation. But I I think something like that makes a lot of sense. And I have been working uh, with activists in North Dakota in 2018 to pass a constitutional amendment there that says you have to be a citizen to vote. There are non-citizens voting on uh, school issues in San Francisco today. And in fact, in San Francisco, they seem pretty proud that it's not just non-citizens who are here legally. But also, if you're here illegally and you're not a citizen, you're also allowed to vote in those elections in San Francisco. There are 11 cities in Maryland, and I have friends who were part of the effort to bring non-citizen voting to uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland, and, and applaud it coming to these other cities. And and I understand their position. They look at it and they say, "Well, these people are living here; they should have some vote on." you know, what's happening in the schools they send their children to, what taxes they're paying as as people in this community. But I, I look at it a different way and I say, if they want to be a voting citizen of this country, let's make it as easy as possible for them to get here on their own accord and and, you know, by people who agree to help them, not by the public, you know, whether they like it or not. And let's make it as easy for them to get here and become citizens as is reasonable. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I like that process. And I like them becoming citizens. And in fact, a lot of the leaders in this effort to make voting clearly only for citizens are people who've come in from other countries legally and have become citizens, and say, "Wait a second! This is this is part of what it means to be a citizen." So uh, it it's interesting when we look at interference in the election. So often, it, it doesn't seem to be a uh, a principled stand that says, "Here's where where the rules should be." It's almost a pick and choose. Some of the people who have screamed the loudest about Russian interference in our election believe that if you sneak into the country, you know, uh, a week before the election from Russia or anywhere else, you ought to be able to cast a vote. Somehow you can't, you can't run a Facebook ad. You can't comment on a Facebook post. But if you go down to the polls and click the lever for somebody, that's A-OK. And it just seems to me that we, we need reform in our immigration process and that one of the ways to get at that reform to be reasonable and cause people to have some comfort that we have a reasonable process that makes sense where we allow people to come in this is a country of immigrants of course we continue to have immigration and of course we have a process for those people to become citizens because they aren't second-class people they're first-class people we're glad to have them here let's have a, a sensible process But that sensible process doesn't mean, hey, we just want to willy-nilly give everybody who's here on vacation or who snuck into the country a vote. I think that would go a long way. And the other thing is we have to be committed to free speech. The greatest gift this country has ever given the world bigger, in my mind, than winning World War II against the Nazis and Imperial Japan is the whole idea of freedom of speech. If you had American freedom of speech in China, communist China, if you had it in Russia and it was respected, Putin would be out on his ear. People could connect with each other. Xi Jinping would be gone very soon because the only thing that keeps him in power is the batons that they beat people with and the ability to throw people in prison for saying something uh, that their fellow citizens are going to take and run with and say, wait a second, that's right, we're human beings. We deserve some say in our government. So uh, freedom of speech is wonderful. Let's stop being afraid of voices that we disagree with. Let's welcome them. But let's also have reasonable rules so that we have people coming to our country who want to be Americans, who want to be citizens, they become citizens, they cast a vote. We make decisions as American citizens, and we move to the next
1: election. And speaking of elections, we have one coming on. I call it Death Race 2020. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to steal that, Tim. And now you say you said it. And so I can't steal it now. Thanks a lot. You can borrow it. I think I I, th- I may not even be the first, but I mean, it's such an obvious joke. But <laughs> Wednesday's was called Mistaken Misogyny. And it's about Death Race 2020 and the vanishing of the candidacy of Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is, you know,
0: we have so much consternation when a woman is not elected, that somehow it's sexism. And of course, um, (laughs) not that there isn't some level of sexism, all of these isms, there are levels of it in our society. So it makes no sense to say, oh, there's no sexism at all. But if you call everything sexism, then automatically nothing is sexism. And so how do you fight sexism? I think that the nationwide hand-wringing about misogyny after Elizabeth Warren's very badly run campaign fails is a huge negative because it sends a message that we will claim sexism about anything. I think most objective viewers know Elizabeth Warren Uh, She stumbled with her dumb, you know, I'm going to drink a beer and try to pretend that I'm like you. Because people don't like that sort of pandering. Luckily, she moved beyond that. She also had the, you know, Trump calling her Pocahontas and she claimed to be a Native American and did seem to get some economic uh, career benefits from that because Harvard made a big deal out of her being a person of color even though, uh, you know, you look at her and you say she's from Oklahoma and she is as white as as, uh, as Snow White. Um, but but it, it seems like uh, where she increased her support was by coming up with all these plans. Now, I hated every plan she came up with. I disagree with her in a fundamental, principle, policy basis. So it doesn't matter how much I like her or don't like her, and I think most people who are politically very involved. We're not deciding whether we think someone's nice or not nice or gets it or is with us or you know, whether we'd like to have a beer with them or not. We want them to run the country and we wanna know what policies they're gonna have. So Elizabeth Warren was never on my list to consider because I saw her policies. But it's interesting to me that her, um, her campaign started to catch some, some energy She was first in the polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, I believe, around the end of the summer and uh, the first of the fall. And I think it was because she was coming up with plans and people respected someone who was thinking about these things and coming up with plans. And if you liked her plans, great. She's that type of person. And then, of course, um, she's bumping up against Bernie Sanders. And whatever you think about Bernie Sanders, and I don't like him very much because I'm not a socialist and I I disagree with his views, but he is authentic. And when Medicare for all started to get some pushback from the so-called moderates, who I don't think are very moderate, but pretended to be because there was a lane there, uh, when the moderates started to say, wait a second, you're going to throw everybody off their health care plans and have a one size fits all that doesn't make sense you know that is kind of a socialist uh, communist type big government plan and they said it's going to cost a lot of money you're going to have to raise taxes on the middle class you know it's okay if you raise taxes on you know rich people because they're bad but the middle class is wonderful so and of course in america the middle class is you and everybody in the middle class So everybody seems to think they're in the middle class. I I wouldn't be surprised if Bloomberg and Bill Gates sometimes say, oh, I'm in the middle class, aren't I? But so it's, it's a little bit of a fiction and they play to it. But she couldn't admit that taxes would go up for the middle class. And Bernie Sanders, to his credit, and it's why as much as I do not like his politics, I have some respect for the man. He said yes taxes are going to go up. And he explained, I don't think he's right, but he explained that in his view, your taxes would go up, but the benefits you'd get by not having to pay co-pays and not having to pay whatever you pay of your insurance, whether it's all of it or none of it, depending on what your employer might pick up, um, you know, you're going to be better off. And it was a legitimate answer as much as I think you won't be better, better off. And and I just have this one challenge. think about. The government programs that have been instituted that make you better off, that the taxes you're paying to get those services are a great deal. Well, if you see a lot of those where you're getting great deals from the government, you might believe Bernie. I can't think of one where the deal is uh, is a great deal where I'm paying pennies and getting hundreds of dollars back. Uh, that that hasn't worked for me, but but he was, he was straightforward. He didn't dodge the question. And of course, Elizabeth Warren was all over the map on the question. It was, oh no, I'm not gonna raise your taxes. And then, you know, I'm, I'm re-looking at it. And all of a sudden, what was her strength, her plans, and the fact that she was prepared became her, wit- her weakness because it showed she wasn't really re- uh, prepared. She had to go back to the drawing board. And that ended her ascendance in the polls And uh, and she started to fall like a a rock. And I think Bernie got the the better part of the progressive vote. She also floated the thing. And I I have to think, you know, because I'm in Washington and that's almost 99.999% of the time. uh, As FDR said, nothing happens by accident in politics. And there was an op-ed in Huffington Post which alleged that Bernie had told Elizabeth Warren that a woman couldn't win. Meaning kind of by you know connotation that he doesn't believe women can win and he didn't want a woman on the ticket and so on and so on. He denied it and he was asked about it and denied it in the debate, and she was given every opportunity in that one debate to to hit him on it if she wanted to, and she didn't seem to hit him. And and look, Elizabeth Warren, if you saw her hit Bloomberg, you know she knows how to hit somebody. I'm talking verbally. And uh And so then after the debate, she walks across the stage with the mic still hot, live recording. And she says, I think you called me a liar on national television to Bernie. Well, this is a great story. I mean, you have all the debate, but now you get to see behind the scenes. And so this has maximum attention. She goes after Bernie and Bernie says, let's not talk about this now. Something to that effect and basically sloughs it off, and let's talk about it later. And she seems to accept that at the moment, and it's over. And I think that sent a heck of a message that, wait a second, she's she's not as strong an individual and an advocate as she should be. She didn't advocate for herself. She made the, you know, she was livid that he would make that charge, even though he didn't really call her a liar. He simply said the story wasn't true, and it kind of, it kind of makes it clear that she did float the story uh, because she's saying he called her a liar. Um, but it, it just, it showed the underbelly of someone who wasn't wasn't straightforward and clear and, and completely honest about the situation. And I think it did her in. Um, so I think that's why she lost. I think it had almost nothing to do with her being a woman, although somewhere, somebody said, I don't like women. I won't vote for her. I'm sure that happened. There's 320 million people in the country. Surely that was in somebody's head. The interesting thing is, we're talking about the Democrats. And in the general election, Democrats, Republicans, independents, everybody, a majority of voters are women. But women tend to skew Democratic and men Republican. And so in the Democratic primary, it's even a bigger majority for women. And so what we're supposed to believe is that women are so misogynist. They hate women so much that they won't vote for a woman. Now, we just had an election in 2018 where women candidates won all over the place. So it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And yet we have to hear it again and again. Uh, I think it does a tremendous disservice. Because look, we have sexism in our society. I reared three daughters uh, with a little help from my wife. I mean, she was there from time to time to help. And uh, see, honey, I gave you credit. (laughs) <laughs> I am just so dead. Uh, anyway, she, she doesn't watch these whole things, so I'm probably safe. Anyway, rearing three daughters, one of the biggest concerns I had and still have for your daughters is that I think there is a deficit of expectations for young women in society. I think that they are not reminded enough that we're expecting big things from them that we think they can do anything they want to do, that if they put their mind to something, they can achieve it. I know as a kid, I got that message from my parents all the time. And I want you to know, although I think it may have been slightly less for my sisters just because there was more of the homemaker role. My mom was a homemaker, a great one, and, uh, and my dad worked and so on. And so that was kind of how it was set up. So maybe there was a little less of it. But boy, I think my daughter, my daughters, my sisters, and my daughters too, had the expectation from their father, from my father and from me, that I expect great things. Not, I'm not telling you, oh, you ought to do this. Whatever you do. And that was the beauty with my parents, frankly. I think it's the best thing that they did is that they never suggested what we do. But it was always clear that they expected us to think what we were doing was super important. That they wanted us to believe whatever we chose, that we could, we could do it and that it was important that we give it our all. In other words, it's just empowering. You're a, you're a person and you're a great person. Go get them. And that message has to be sent to women as much as it's sent to men. And I think throughout history and to this day, it's not sent as much. Now, there's all kinds of messages now that women are great and man, man, maybe not so much. Those aren't, they aren't very helpful, I think, to women. Because they're saying women are great as a gender, as a sex, but not so much you as an individual happen to be female and you're wonderful and you can do anything. So I don't think it helps women as much. And I think it's it's actually a real negative for men. I think men are sort of put down in our society. And I don't think it matters as much to men who are adults. But I think to boys growing up, subtle messages like that come through. And I don't think it's a healthy message. So uh, I, I, I think we have a problem there. The other problem we have that I think is is almost exclusively a problem for young women and not for young men. And we have enough problems going through puberty uh, without, without any help, but it is the whole body image, the whole every woman is supposed to be some skinny model on the cover of some stupid magazine. I say stupid because I don't, I don't buy those magazines, but I'm not saying you're stupid. If you do, you, people can like fashion. There's nothing, this is not a, a hit on fashion or a hit on people trying to look nice, or or be healthy, especially be healthy. Uh, But it's a hit, I think, on just a complete obsession about looks. And I think it is destructive. It's hard no matter what parents and churches and other civic organizations do. If the TV's on, you're getting that message constantly. And you get that message in society even if you kill your television. So I think there are some problems with sexism. I think when we go apoplectic as a society and when our media goes apoplectic because a woman who ran a very poor campaign for the presidency loses, we are not helping the cause of equal rights. We are setting it back. And then here's the kicker. (laughs) to mistaken misogyny so we have a society that doesn't give women their due that's misogynistic even women are misogynistic because they're the majority of voters in the democratic primaries and they didn't vote for elizabeth warren how dare they not vote for her how dare a woman vote for a man and i've heard some women say they voted for a man because they thought only a man could beat trump and and so they didn't vote for the woman maybe they wanted to well, I, I, I don't usually blame people for voting however they vote. I can take them to task for their analysis. I can take their candidate to task, but I think we're all trying to defend ourselves in a rigged system, not of our making. And so I have a certain sympathy uh, for people voting how they think is the best to protect themselves. But I think that whole argument is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if the problem is women are too scared of the one candidate, so they're gonna to rush to embrace misogyny. Well, I think we found the problem. But here is the kicker. The kicker is, there is still a woman in the race. There is still a woman running, and that woman, Tulsi Gabbard, who's a congresswoman from Hawaii, received a delegate on Super Tuesday, she received a delegate from American Samoa, Bloomberg, his big delegate. He got got the other one from America, Samoa. And that qualified her for the next debate. But of course, the DNC, which constantly pays lip service to equal rights for women, has changed their rules midstream to say that no longer qualifies you to be in the debate. And why did they do that? Because politically, they don't like Tulsi Gabbard. And why? Because she's against regime change wars. Now, some people may disagree. Oh, they don't like her for this reason or that. Please leave messages in the comments. I would love to hear people tell me why they dislike Tulsi Gabbard for any reason other than her main campaign theme, which has been stop regime change wars. Because it leads me to believe that the higher-ups, the vaulted insiders of the Democratic Party, like war. They like regime change wars because they have gone to great lengths. And the mainstream media that leans Democrat, and leans might be a a nice way of saying that, leans and falls over Democrat.
1: Maybe it leans Uh, from the other side.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's as we've said several times in recent weeks. The Democrats are not kind of leaning on that. They're they're to the left of the Democrats. They're to the left of the liberal Democrats. And and there was a story I won't go into it because I don't I don't have it in front of me and I don't have all the names and stuff. But there was a reporter who came out and was was outed by uh, James O'Keefe and Project Veritas saying that he's a socialist. And he was, I believe it was ABC, but I probably shouldn't have said that because I don't know for sure. But he was reassigned because he admitted that he was a socialist. And I'm thinking, well, what's, what's, there's not, it's not a crime to be a socialist. We live in a free country, at least, you know, for the most part, kind of. And, uh, and, and so he shouldn't have been reassigned. Can't he still be objective? Well, if he can't be, I'd like to know the political affiliations of the rest of people covering these stories because I'm convinced they're overwhelmingly on the left, to the left of the Democratic Party, and most of them are socialists. And so what it looked like to me was they were covering their behind. They didn't want it out there that, yes, we're all socialists. And so when we cover something, you know, we're going to have that that lean. And, and, of course, you would think, well, then they would support Bernie Sanders, wouldn't they? Well, no, because they're socialists who want to be in power. So they're afraid, and I think they may be miscalculating, but they're afraid that they can't possibly win with Bernie Sanders. And so they're wanting to go to Joe Biden. And, of course, as the Democrats wanted to get rid of Sanders because he's a socialist, you didn't notice them showing how all of his ideas are so terrible because they endorse most of his ideas. So it's, it's, a, it's, what's happening in the Democratic Party and with the media is, is really, it, it is depressing. It's a little bit sick. We're, we're being fed political information by people who want the Democrats to win Against all, no matter what, they want the Democrats to win, and would like the Democrats to govern from a position far to the left of where most Democrats are in this country. And and if you start watching the news with that in mind, I think you'll I think you'll agree, and I think you'll you'll have a, a better a better chance to kind of discern what's actually being said and what's actually happening. But here they are. The media ignoring Tulsi Gabbard, a woman, and the Democratic Party changing its rules to keep her out of the debate. And then you have woman after woman candidate endorsing Biden, not Tulsi, and frankly saying that there's no more women in the in the debates. There's no more women running. This is the last woman has been defeated. Well, that is false. That's a lie. And so what is going on we have to you know we have to be for equal rights therefore if a woman isn't elected it's a crime against humanity by the people of america who are a bunch of neanderthal boobs who who don't care about equal rights at the same time that those people are completely ignoring and pushing out the last woman in the race so this is, you know, this is our world. And uh, it's an ugly, ugly situation.
1: Now, I have a theory that maybe you can tell me if it's misogynistic or not. It's a theory I have. I know why I didn't like Elizabeth Warren, just not even considering what she said. It's the way she said it. She struck me as phony from, the day, from day one, but phony in not a lying way, like, I mean, you know, in a sense almost all these people are phony, right? They're not really, I mean, Biden, is he, is Biden really an earnest person? I i, I don't know, I mean, it just it strikes me that politicians know how to lie. But she came across as someone who was talking to her dog. Um, you know, that that, that kind of vo- voice that, well, you, I think of also a grade school principal might, a, a woman grade school principal might sound like this, a very earnest and, but it's not earnest, It's a, it's an act. And she was a Harvard professor. I don't believe she talked to her students like that. I can't believe that she talked to the, uh, her students like she talks to the people of the United States. Now, I'd like to hear somebody tell me different, but I just think that's not true. I believe she's, she has an act.
0: Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I mean, look, we had, uh, we had during Obama's administration, he would go to a southern uh, black church, and he would speak with an accent that he didn't have. Which I thought was just a little bizarre. Um, you know, I, I guess he's trying to fit in or something. But it was it's not like he wasn't going to be well received. But but it just was strange. And of course, Hillary Clinton sometimes—and and his accent oh. was a lot. His accent was a lot better than hers. But she would do the same thing, and I just thought, you know, this is pandering in an offensive way to me. But but and I I know a lot of people. I in fact I've said the same thing that that she talks kind of like a school mom. So maybe I don't agree with you in the sense that I suspect you know maybe maybe I see more a, a second grade teacher. I didn't like my second grade teacher very much, <laughs> and so I any teacher I really don't like I see as a second grade teacher. But uh, <laughs> but but uh, I saw it kind of like that. Now, now obviously if you're lecturing to a Harvard class, uh, you would think you wouldn't be talking like you're talking to second graders, but there was an element of that. I guess my point is, I think that if she would have been saying, I, I love term limits, I love initiative and referendum, I believe in limited government where people's human rights are to be respected and we don't think government should control all of our society, I would have found her speaking style to be really not so bad. What are you talking about, Tim? How could you attack her? She's a wonderful woman, and so I—I I, I don't think I can really come at it, you know, clean in the sense of of without any bias. But I do think she had a touch of of kind of a schoolmarm type thing, and and it's look at Pete Buttigieg. He was—he never caught on with, with a, a very broad slice of the electorate, very articulate. I, I found him to be the most frightening because I think he's a big government guy, but he spoke so smartly. And so I could see him getting in and kind of being whatever anybody wanted, at least appearing that way. But I think that his speaking style was too intellectual, was too sharp, that if you were coaching him to win the election, you might have encouraged him to stumble on his words every once in a while, to make people feel more at home. I used to, when I was uh, fighting uh, against draft registration as a young man, Ronald Reagan running for president said the draft or draft registration destroys the very values our society is committed to defending. I said that quote so many times that I've never had to look it up. I mean, that was like 40 years ago, something like that, or, or yesterday, one of the two. And, uh, and, and so I kind of, you know, I had, had that memorized, and I used to inject a, a little stutter in that because I felt like I'm giving it without any emotion because it's so rote. That I need to somehow stop to give an emphasize and to allow my own mind to say, "Oh, that's right. Let's really emphasize this point." and And so when when someone says, uh, "Oh, Elizabeth Warren comes off kind of like a school mom, I think it's easy for every kind of left-wing feminist to say, "See, See? They always characterize our us women that way." But of course, men are being characterized in exactly the same way. Does Michael Bloomberg not care about anybody? I heard a lot of people after that first debate say, he seems so aloof, he doesn't care. It's not that he doesn't care, it's the way that he spoke did not express that. And so um, I do think that that uh, Elizabeth Warren's biggest problem was things she did, not how she spoke, uh, not that she was a woman, certainly, but all of that weighs in. And um, and so I, I didn't particularly like her speaking style. And And frankly, I do like, Tulsi Gabbard speaking style. Now, sometimes I think I, I like it because she's forceful, she's clear. You don't wonder after she's finished her sentence, which is almost always not a run-on sentence. I'm, I'm trying to learn from her, and uh, but but uh, you know what she meant. You don't question what she meant. You, yeah, I got it. Uh, so she's very clear and forceful. I think that sometimes she comes off as too too scripted too much that she has the same line coming back and back but you know if you're trying to get a message through you do have to repeat that same line maybe she needs to steal my little trick and have a uh, just a little stutter every once in a while or a little pause that uh that makes it to where people can catch up and say oh she is human
1: um so but she seems but, more presidential than anybody else in the race I, I of course maybe i just want to see her for four years rather than anybody else not because I agree with her policies other than on war, but uh, I mean she's very articulate.
0: She yes,
1: good, and she doesn't. I mean she doesn't engage in all the weirdnesses that everybody else does. Can you imagine Bernie for four years? That is an old grump. I mean, on, on stylistic grounds, I don't like him. I, mean, I I don't. I actually don't. I actively dislike Bernie uh, Sanders. Uh, and if Biden didn't seem senile, I probably would like him. I have to admit, I probably would like Biden. He's the most likable candidate, I think, partly because he's
0: trying so hard to be liked. I mean, he's constantly trying to do the I'm good old Joe, you know, lunchbox Joe. And I think he's put more effort, maybe maybe because he couldn't articulate a policy if his, heart, if his life depended on it. Uh, so he's trying to be well liked. But, you know, it's funny. If you've never met somebody, you don't know what they're really like. And you don't find that out from TV. I, I know all kinds of people say, oh, I really like this one congressman because they see him do this on TV and he says something and it's great and so on. And like, I've had some interaction and I, I kind of think, oh my goodness, this guy is, you know, is completely duplicitous and, and, you know, narcissistic and, you know, because I've had some interaction with him. So it's, it's, uh, I think people who say, "Oh, Joe's a likable guy," or even or even have likability as a factor, I just think you you know that's a factor you can know nothing about, and that really, in essence, is not part of the job description of being president. You're not, you know, you're not on trolling on Facebook trying to make new friends constantly. You got other other jobs to do.
1: George Washington would not survive the television era or the internet era. I mean, he was beloved by Americans, but he was we considered stiff and unknowable now.
0: Yes, yes, no. It is. Uh, I think. I think there's been a lot said and written about how our politics has changed in the TV era, and even in the radio era. Some from from what it would have been in in Washington's day, because uh, you could hardly find a TV set or a radio in in his day. I think also the you know likability shouldn't be a factor. And so all of that should kind of get thrown out the window. But I do think with someone like uh, a Tulsi Gabbard, you have someone who is outside of the hierarchy. I think what Bernie had as an advantage in this race was that he wasn't a Democrat. In the same way that Trump Took over the Republican Party, and one of his key calling cards is, I'm not really a Republican. And that says something about the state of our politics that the Democrats, the most active, engaged Democrats, want someone who's not a Democrat and have no respect for their party hierarchy, and for absolutely valid reasons, in my mind. And the same is true of Republicans, that the rank and file don't trust the RNC as far as they can throw it. And they're right, in my mind, not to trust the RNC. Now, I'm not a, I am not—I didn't vote for Trump. I'm not a big Trump fan. Uh, I look at what he's done that I think is good, like Neil Gorsuch and Neil Gorsuch. Did I mention Neil Gorsuch? And I look at stuff he's done that isn't so good and, and frankly, I'm not surprised. Um, but but I think he's he's done better than the constant, you know, he's crazy and so on. And maybe he is a little crazy. A lot of these people are not normal people. Uh, and I think, think the same is true with with Bernie. The one thing I kind of like about Bernie is he's ideological. That's his number one bad thing. But it's also his number one good thing because it tells me that if he did become president, that we could trust him to be good on the few things that he's good on, and we could raise uh, an army of citizens to oppose him on his big government socialism, and I think it might create a huge groundswell for free market capitalism, not crony capitalism, free market capitalism. Uh, so. But, but we, we, we have to recognize both parties are, frankly, illegitimate among their own rank and file, and that we just spent a week hand-wringing about a woman not winning the presidency and that that was all about misogyny, even as we totally ignored and discounted the woman who's still in the race. So uh this is absurdity upon absurdity, and uh, it be it would be humorous if we didn't have to live here you know uh I wanted to revisit what 's happening in Hong Kong. I think it 's the most important uh, event of the last year. I don 't know how Hong Kong is able to maintain what level of freedom they have today against the Chinese Communist Party and the butchers of Beijing, but I am so admiring uh and so moved and inspired by their fight and it is my fight i think it is our fight that is as the as the commentary's title said freedom's front lines and uh you know because of coronavirus which is a pretty darn serious thing it's you know all over the world now you would expect that there's not going to be as many mass protests and stuff. That doesn't really fit the script for fighting coronavirus. But of course, the Communist Party in China, who is the puppet master for Kerry Lam and the Hong Kong authorities, because their main demand is suffrage, that we get to vote for our leaders, basic democracy, democracy 101 is all they're asking for we want to elect our leaders because they know if they don't have that mechanism to control their own government they've got no defense against china passing any law they want through the hong kong legislature and uh and so this is a is a fight about democracy and basic human rights and i think americans should be paying uber attention to it because um it's, it's hugely important, not just to them, but to us, because if we, as we have talked about in previous weeks, the influence of China is not just something that should scare people in Hong Kong or Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait, where China keeps threatening to take them by force uh, and snuff out their freedom and democracy. But they have, they've got their tentacles in Australian universities, in American universities, Uh, The National Basketball Association, which is national, meaning the American uh, National Basketball Association, can't say boo about China. Somebody in, in working for them says something about maybe we ought to respect democracy in Hong Kong. All of a sudden, our NBA is scared to death walking on eggshells for the butchers of Beijing. And we have to recognize that's where we are in this world. China is number two economically. I'm beginning to think they're number one politically. And if they were peaceful and friendly, either to their own people or to other people, it'd be a different matter. But they're not. And so we, we have a serious, serious problem with what China led and led, controlled, by the Chinese communist party is doing in their own country from concentration camps to selling body parts to well the list just goes on and on you can't you can't mention all the crimes against humanity that are being committed we have to stop being asleep at the switch and so i wanted to remind people that this is still happening in hong kong and they bravely came out partly because they were recognizing the death of a student who had fallen one story in a parking garage that was being cleared of protesters uh, by the police in hong kong who amnesty international has come out and said we need an independent investigation of the police in hong kong and the violence they are inflicting against peaceful demonstrators as well as demonstrators who maybe spray paint or or try to defend themselves from from the authorities, and so they came out to recognize four months since this student died had a candlelight vigil, and they couldn't have the candlelight vigil because the police broke it up, and the police said they found bomb making material and bricks and all kinds of things that show that this was going to be violent, and so they then stopped the the uh, uh, mourners, and searched them, and of course, they arrested 40 people, but no, nobody for having any violent, you know, they, they were arrested for illegal uh, demonstration, not for any acts of violence, not for having any uh, weapons on them, and so again, this is, you know, I don't trust anything that I hear from the Hong Kong police, because you're really hearing it from the Chinese Communist Party. And it's all been full of you know what. So, um, and one of the most interesting things through the 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 latter part of last year, as the protests continued and continued, you see more things. Like I remember seeing the the guy who was lit on fire by protesters. There was a video that was shown. I believe this was in November uh, of one gentleman being lit on fire, and you it showed his his chest engulfed in flames. And then there was never any rest of the story. What happened to this guy? Did he die? Did the people who lit him on fire, did they find him? Have they prosecuted him? And the fact that there was no news after that led me to believe, and I could be wrong, but I, do, I think if there's reason to, to look at it this way, I don't believe that really took place in the way that they said it took place because there was no follow-up. Surely they would have said, oh, this man is badly scarred and look at the the injuries and how terrible. It would have been a two or a three or an eight-day story. So we, we have to look at what they're saying and realize they don't tell the truth. And the biggest, I think, validation of the protests was the fact that, I believe it was in early December, they had an election in Hong Kong. It was a local election. It wasn't uh, Hong Kong-wide elections. It was elections across all of Hong Kong, but for local officials. And prior to this election, there were no pro-democracy people serving in these local councils. After the election, 87% of the seats were won By pro democracy candidates. Now that tells you two things. It tells you that the pro democracy movement is not being looked at as violent, destructive, rotten hoodlums by the people of Hong Kong. And it tells you that any time there is free voting, you are going to see candidates favoring democracy win. That means that all the propaganda about how terrible democracy is that you hear from the communist Chinese government, just does, it hits people in Hong Kong and I think in China itself and everywhere else in the world as complete BS. So don't forget about Hong Kong. As they say there, stand with Hong Kong, fight for freedom. And uh, and boy, uh, what they're doing, who knows how that will end? But it is a, I think, a very important battle for freedom to hold to as as places like Australia and the United States and around the world in the West, especially. We have let China get away with all kinds of things where it is most dangerous to fight them, and it looks the bleakest. We've got young people and some not so young people risking their lives for freedom and democracy. My hat's off to them.
1: Thank you for tuning in to This Week in Common Sense with Paul Jacob. Paul can be found five days a week at sense.com with a new commentary each day. On the weekends, this podcast. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at locofoco.net. This podcast is available at SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast servers.